You're listening to the Transforming Society podcast. I'm Richard Kemp, and on this episode, I'm speaking with Nicholas Gilmore, consultant to governments and international organizations in fighting financial crime, and Tristram Hicks, former New Scotland Yard detective superintendent and international criminal justice advisor on the operational effectiveness of anti-money laundering regimes. Whether it's terrorism, trafficking, corruption, or tax evasion, where there's crime, dirty money is never far away. Money laundering, that key bedfellow of dirty money, is often glamorized in films and television, as are the people who launder it. The reality, however, is a dangerous, sometimes deadly regime that is propped up by complacency, self-interest, and misunderstanding. In their new book, The War on Dirty Money, Nicholas and Tristram argue that in order to overhaul our criminal justice system for good, financial investigation needs to be at the forefront of it all. Nicholas Gilmore and Tristram Hicks, welcome to the Transforming Society podcast. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Pleasure's all mine. Thanks so much for coming on. In the news, I, I hear it's a, it, you know, when I'm listening and reading the news, it's common to hear that law enforcement needs to up its game um, because more money launderers are becoming more sophisticated all the time. Uh, but you say in your book that that's an incorrect depiction, uh, that money laundering at its core involves transfers and purchases. And that um, you go on to say that this fiction of the sophisticated money launderer is actually a dangerous distraction. What what do you mean by this? It, it's um, it's the thing that's always going to be pointed at law enforcement. Unfortunately, when you have a, a serious crime as money laundering to deal with, so um, it, it it's it, it's probably right right that we believe law enforcement does need to up its game because if if crime is on the rise and we are seeing greater problems with criminality around the world and and the knock-on effect is people dying as a result of dirty money um then then yes law enforcement is to blame but let's go back to the media coverage around many of these these activities and um, they're not always helpful they're typically very much a, a headline grab and the mm. details behind them the actual context Although the story might provide reassurance to to um, community groups and, and and the general public, rarely do they provide true context. So the details are not always there. And of course, it's difficult because law enforcement do not know what's going to happen right at the end of the of the uh, of the court case and how it will be dealt with afterwards. So it's always typically an initial headline. Um, and, and and yes, we agree. Law enforcement does need to to um, up its game in the war on dirty money. Mm. Um, but we have to remember it's just one small cog as it currently stands in a, in a big system. The financial investigator is one small part of, of that system right at the end. It's not a big wheel at the beginning like we would we preferably hope so. Mm. Um, and you, you've got lots of agencies across the globe who are under-resourced and they have inadequate technology. And, and they struggle with many of the processes that are placed before them. So, mm. yes, law enforcement really does need to up its game. But the idea that money laundering is becoming more sophisticated um, really does bring about the question of, of who says so? Who, who, who says it's becoming more sophisticated? Because um, is that such a really true statement? And, and do we have proof of it? Do we do we actually see the evidence that mm -hmm. the money launderer is really now the most um, experienced criminal out there with a wealth of technology and solutions when in reality, you can cross the border with bags of cash just by filling out a piece of paper mm -hmm. for the um, you know for the agency that requires you to do so. Mm -hmm. You can still buy a house with cash in certain countries around the world. 
And that's not because those systems have failed. It's just that's what those systems allow you still to do. And this is still in light of a, a global approach to dealing with dirty money. Mm. So the criminal doesn't need to be so sophisticated. The criminal can still do what it needs to do to mm. launder illicit funds or dirty money. So if we if we look at the many of the typologies reports out there, the, the idea that money laundering is committed by a type and then that draws in the placement and the layering and the integration stages. For many, it can be seen as, as being quite a, a, a sophisticated and, and quite scary uh, model of money laundering that's being built up. You have a growing number of typology reports. You have lots of details involved in those in relation to cryptocurrencies and technology solutions. And then there's this mixture of different crimes that people actually have this fear that, oh, my goodness, this is becoming very complicated. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you have technology solution providers who are primarily focused, unfortunately, on the prevention stage, which is the AML compliance stage, which is where businesses and professions need to comply with the global regulations that right. the government will, will set out for them. You have those technology solutions providers who would be who are doing well out of saying money laundering is becoming very complicated and sophisticated and technical. Mm. So you, in turn, need a technical solution, mm -hmm. a sophisticated solution. And of course, the result is you have this fear of missing out of, well, if my competitors have a, an IT solution to deal with this really complicated problem of money laundering, then I must have one as well. And it's become a, a, a spinning wheel that just seems to get faster and faster and faster. And I, I, I really think, and you'll, you'll, you can see this in the book, hopefully, that, that we, we want to bring you back to the basics. We want mm. to bring you back to let's have a look at what money laundering is. Let's really understand it, not as a series of, of stages, mm. not as a series of typologies, but as a series of transfers, um, uh, transactions and purchases. Mm -hmm. So are transactions just taking place? Are people just purchasing rather than really overcomplicating something, which at the end of the day, many people can't keep up with. The, they, they cannot understand all the different types of money laundering that, that, that are, are now being um, offered to us as, as general people. If you're right. involved in the compliance sector, you are bombarded by more information on a daily basis. <laughs> It's, it's 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 a challenge yeah throughout your book and you said it there that it's transfers and it's purchases and that's that's what money laundering is yes there are yes there are technological solutions for these for the for these money launderers but what they are doing is they are transferring and they are purchasing and that's what that's yeah. what needs to be followed yes yeah. if you take if you take the methods of money laundering and, you, mm. and if you describe 30 methods of money laundering mm. and they're typically listed in typology reports, mm. the majority of these typology reports are created by the fin Financial Action Task Force and then they're used globally within regional and, and national um, law enforcement and financial intelligence units to provide better understanding. So they're typically taken as has been true and correct when they come from the Financial Action Task Force. But if you were to place all of those methods of money laundering one on top of each other, mm -hmm. you would really see it would be like a lift shaft in a tall building, a series of common activities. There would be a series of interconnecting stairwells which may connect a number of those typologies together. But if you break all of those activities down, 
-hmm. And there is an approach to crime scripting, which you can do with money laundering, where you break money laundering down as, as, as after observing the, you know, the criminal process, mm -hmm. you can see that actually at the end of the day, all the, all the person is doing, whether it be the criminal or a professional money launderer is transfers and purchases. Mm -hmm. We don't need to take it too far to overcomplicate mm -hmm. it because if we overcomplicate it, we confuse people whose job it is to stop it. Right. Right. Yeah. No, that's absolutely key. Oh, thank you, Nicholas. In the, Throughout the book, I see I've, I see that there are there are some chasms in the anti money laundering uh, processes in 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 the uh, system. Uh, the di and and you said a little bit about it then, uh, Nicholas. And I'd like to hear a bit more. Um, the difference in funding between prevention and enforcement, for example, um, the lack of intern international collaboration as well. Tristram, with these two things, uh, what what problems can arise from these? Well, the um, disparity in funding. Let's start with that. Mm. It's estimated by, by LexisNexis, which is a, a company in the forefront of this field, that, that compliance and prevention costs around 210 billion American dollars a year. Wow. 20 billion pounds for your English listeners, <laughs> um, which is a whole load of money. So, so we're not short of money in this war, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but the money is all going into compliance and prevention. And, and that generates information for law enforcement. That's that's what the, the task of, of, of prevention and compliance is identifying the dirty money, telling law enforcement about it through mm. the financial intelligence unit. The, the financial intelligence unit in each country, because we now have that, which the Financial Action Task Force created. So we, we, we need to recognize that the Financial Action Task Force is the, the global standard setter in this area. Mm -hmm. So they set the standards for compliance. They set the standards for financial intelligence units. Mm. And that's all passed to law enforcement where they don't have a budget. The budget is so small that we, we've never calculated it. Mm -hmm. So, so we, we don't think it's anywhere near a billion compared <laughs> to 200 billion. Um, but actually, it's so small, we don't know. Wow. So, so that is a chasm in the area mm -hmm. and the technology mm -hmm. side that Nick referred to with, with RegTech and um, the, the technology used to, to identify uh, what are believed to be suspicious, unusual transactions, that computerization in the financial sector is not mirrored in law enforcement. You know, a lot of law enforcement and prosecutors are still paper-based. They do not have the technology they need to, to process the information from the, the financial sector and sometimes it's not sent to them anyway mm -hmm. by the FIUs because it is odd that the task of the money launderer around those uh, purchases and transfers mm. is to hide the information about the crime from the information about the money right to separate those two things to separate those two things mm -hmm. so, so the reason it's it's difficult sometimes to detect a dodgy transfer is because you don't know that it's connected with crime because the information mm -hmm. has been disguised. Mm -hmm. So it's supposed to look ordinary. And, and so it does. So it takes a degree of skill. Mm -hmm. and, and so we're not saying it's, it's, it's massively complicated, but mm -hmm. it does require skill to identify um, that there is a crime or criminal connected with the money. Now, the financial intelligence units have got all this information about dodgy money 
but they don't have the information about crime and criminals because law enforcement have got that. Right. So what okay. we need to do as in our war is to, to do the opposite of what money launderers do. They're trying to separate the information. We mm. need to bring the information together to bring the information mm -hmm. about the dirty money with the information about crime and criminals held by law enforcement. Right. And we yeah. have no budget to do that. We don't even know how many people are doing that in law enforcement. And a lot of law enforcement don't know that they're in a war against dirty money. They think how how is that? Well, they think they're dealing with burglary and robbery and, and ah, right. called economic crimes. And we all know, they know, everybody knows it's an economic crime because the objective of a, of a burglary and a robbery is, is to get some money. It's an economic sure. crime sure. and listed by the Financial Action Task Force, but not listed by law enforcement and governments as economic crimes. So we've, we've labelled something economic crime and we've, we've tried to put it in a pigeonhole and we've ended up with a really small pigeonhole mm. with nobody actually servicing that pigeonhole in law enforcement because they're all busy with non-economic crimes like minor frauds and robberies and burglaries and, and they haven't connected what economic crime is. So we've got a basic lack of understanding. Right, yeah. And this is taking place on, as Nick said, in those 200 battlefields all over the world. And, and we need to join those battlefields together mm. using tools like the United Nations and Interpol, the Financial Action Task Force. Mm -hmm. We need to up their game in very specific ways. And we've, we've given solutions in the book about how those international bodies can help with some simple stuff to mm -hmm. help uh, individual battlefields do better. Um, and we've, we've identified throughout the book, the book is about solutions and yep. lots of people explain the problem. We're trying to say how to fix it. So, something in your book that I was absolutely shocked by. You say that almost all people convicted in criminal courts world, worldwide keep the proceeds of their crimes. How, how can this be possible? Um, well, let's start with Britain, because mm -hmm. if we go back to the olden days, by which I mean before 2003, so not that long ago, <laughs> we, we didn't have the Proceeds of Crime Act. And that allowed us for the first time to effectively confiscate money from convicted criminals. Mm. And before that, we didn't have the law. So police officers like me mm -hmm. didn't think about it. Mm. Prosecutors and judge, judges never got the evidence because people like me never gathered it mm -hmm. because we didn't have the legal powers to do so. And, and all... Cops and prosecutors and judges, they're all the same all over the world. They all work within a legal framework. Mm -hmm. That's what they do. So if they don't have a legal framework that allows them to think about dirty money, then they don't. Right. And, and the, the figure of 80% comes from analysis of the Financial Action Task Force. They do uh, evaluations of countries, and 80% and of those countries are in the lower half of the, the score system they have. A, they have a four-point score system, mm -hmm. and 80% of countries are in the bottom half, which means that their performance is moderate, meaning mm -hmm. fundamental reform is needed, or low, meaning really that they're not doing anything at all. So, so we, we've got an idea um, that 80% that of countries, and we know from our own experience, having gone from before to after the Proceeds of Crime Act, how we transformed... Uh, confiscation in this country and, and I would say the UK is uh, an outstanding example 
um, which academics should look more at to see what happens before you have effective law and after you have effective law. Mm. In, the, in, the, in the decade before the Proceeds of Crime Act, uh, all law enforcement agencies in the UK confiscated 100 million. In the decade after, it was well over a billion. <laughs> so the before wow. and after, the, the graph is uh, is an extraordinary flat line that suddenly shoots up mm. like a, a lift in a in an elevator shaft. Mm. Um, it is extraordinary. So so it can be done, right. and other countries are making that strong transformation. Mm-hmm. But we're not doing enough research. We don't know enough about about dirty mm-hmm. money and how to solve it. And we mm-hmm. need to spend some of that two hundred billion. Mm. On, on academic research to actually tell us what's going on, to ask right. criminals, does any of this work? Um, you know, there's, there's a lot we could spend the money on and we're spending it in one area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Tristram. With, um, with the proceeds of the crime as well, the, your book was helping me to understand that when, the, when law enforcement confiscate or like the, the courts confis- were, were confiscating certain things, but it wasn't necessarily the actual full proceeds of that crime it was it it looked like the, the the criminals were were being confiscated from but really the the value your 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 book was showing me that the dirty money isn't just isn't just a, a bag full of money like you see in the in the telly on on, on telly or, or in the films it's 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 value in houses it's values values uh in properties in boats in 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 what have you and that 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 is becoming key in confiscation is it not Yes, I think we've we've improved our understanding mm. uh, through the Proceeds of Crime Act in the UK and, and other countries who are confiscating the proceeds of crime, the, the, the real estate and, and the, the money in the bank, mm-hmm. as opposed to the, the instruments of crime. Mm. Right. Like mobile phones, the cash in hand to buy more drugs. Mm. Um, and, and so, so we, we need to clearly differentiate between the proceeds of crime and, and the object of the crime or the instrumentalities of the crime. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, the Financial Action Task Force, despite having uh, encouraged countries to collect statistics, doesn't differentiate between those things. So in the book, we've, we've set out some, some ideas about how to um, have levels of confiscation mm-hmm. so, so that we can more clearly understand that we can take the proceeds of crime that really deters criminals rather than taking the, the float or the instruments of the crime, which really doesn't have any impact, but kind of sounds good. Mm. So, mm. so if you take a kilo of, of cocaine out of the drug world, then then that that's um, that's a you know it's a whole uh, lot of cocaine or a ton mm. of cocaine. Let's let's call it a ton. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and law enforcement describe that at the retail value of that cocaine as if it was being sold on the street mm-hmm. and actually it's been seized at the wholesale level so actually the real <laughs> is lower uh and anyway the the cocaine crop is many hundreds of of tons of cocaine so right. um seizing the drugs doesn't really um it's the equivalent of of taking the the cash float mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. to decry it's a good job has been done taking a cocaine sure ton of cocaine but actually the real issue is the proceeds of crime, which is a whole lot more mm, mm-hmm. impacted if you seize that. That taking that cash float is just a, a drop in the ocean for for the for the criminals in this case, no? Yeah, because really we're talking about um, not people who strayed from the straight and narrow, 
mm. which is what criminal justice systems are kind of geared to. Mm. But people who, who left the straight and narrow a long time ago and, and they do this as an occupation. And whether that's crime or, or egregious regulatory breaches, because you know corporate crime is an issue here mm-hmm. um, that we're not doing enough about. And, and we talk in the book about how, how corporates have, have kind of double indemnity because when they commit a crime and, and they're investigated, uh, the law enforcement in, generally in most of the world have to identify that the company did the crime and then have to work out who in the company was the, the controlling mind. Mm, right. Um, and, and we're saying, well, effectively, that means double indemnity. It's really, really hard mm-hmm. to, to investigate and prosecute co- companies when they've obviously committed a crime, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but we don't know exactly who in the company did that. Mm-hmm. And, and we say, well, why, why should the public purse have to work out what's going on in the company? The company mm-hmm. committed the crime. Mm-hmm. That's it. Companies right. can be convicted, same as ordinary people. Yep. Companies can have their assets confiscated, same right. as ordinary people. So, so we say, well, here we've got these two tools that we can use, but we're hampered mm-hmm. by having to do this this extra mile. And companies aren't equal before the law. And this seems a, a fundamental injustice mm. in the war on dirty money that we really need to to consider more. Mm. Um, and, and some countries are looking at corporate crime mm-hmm. um, because there's far too much of it. Right. And also companies are far too easy to create. And if you want to commit the perfect crime, then then create a company, get the company to do your crime for you, mm-hmm. distance yourself from the company because mm-hmm. you hide your beneficial ownership or your significant control. Mm-hmm. These are actually technical terms, but you hide your connection with the company. The company commits the crime. The money comes to a, an account you control and then you close the company down and walk mm-hmm. away with the money. You know, the the creation of company <laughs> is, a, is a significant issue in yeah. the war on dirty money. And that's um that seems very unfair on the when it comes back down to the people as well. You've got these companies. My assumption with companies is that the there are there are people who are making more from these sorts of crimes in the company than say everybody in the company, but that they have so much sway, so much power, and then um, if they are able to uh, not not be punished in the correct manner, then it's the it's the people who actually live in the locality of where that where that company is committing their crime. That's those are the people who suffer hardest and for longest in the end. And um, would that uh, be would that be fair? That's right, and 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 particularly relevant if you have companies which are actually controlled in another country where, mm. where the operations of of the company mm. are don't really matter. Mm-hmm. to the directors of the company except in terms of profit there is no social contract where the operations are in a foreign country about which you you know little uh, and so multinationals tend to uh to be less concerned about the local impact of their activities mm. except so far as it generates profit so there's there's an issue there um and and there's also an issue in terms of the um, the fact that it's companies who mm. are committing these environmental crimes. It's not an army of individuals who who are cutting down rainforests and and overfishing in mm-hmm. protected areas and and doing mining. It's not armies of individuals, generally speaking. They're actually parts of companies, and and companies, as we say in the book, have a double indemnity from committing crime 
really we need to to control that more because because mm. companies aren't aren't born like orcs coming out of the ground they they're <laughs> registered by governments mm-hmm. you, know, you can only exist as a company if you're registered in a government register right so governments control companies and they should control them more to to control their registration to control their activities uh, to control who owns them and and unfortunately our company registers are often not verified and quite often secret mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah thank you trisha um we've uh, we've talked about it a bit but i'd like to hear a bit more in the book you make a strong case for asset recovery that this should be considered as important as incarceration when it comes to prevention of crime should should financial investigation go hand in hand with criminal investigation yeah, yes, it should. And then it's not just me saying that. That's the Financial mm. Action Task Force Global Standard talks mm. about parallel investigation. Um, th- there's two reasons. Um, financial investigation is better, quicker and cheaper than traditional investigation. Um, and the reason it's better is because investigators are talking to professional witnesses who are producing documentary evidence. So, so you get a better quality of evidence. Um, it's quicker because they can do it from their desk. They can do it as we're doing now. You right. can do virtual investigation. Most financial investigation is, is done in that way. So you can do lots of investigations quickly without mm. going through that. Um, and finally, you can do, do lots of different investigations because you're doing lots of small investigations against individual people. Mm. Um, and because the, the responses take a while to come back, you can carry mm. on with other investigations while you're waiting for for results particularly from international inquiries mm-hmm. so so those are reasons if you're short of, of assets and short of um, funds in law enforcement then then my advice would be get some financial investigators because <laughs> they're because they're cheaper um, <laughs> more effective right. um, so so that that's one thing um, and the second thing is that criminal justice is quite conservative um, and a lot of people who work in criminal justice see punishment as being the objective and prison as being the ultimate sanction right um and and i'd say that actually if you spent a lifetime getting dirty money for yourself and your family then actually losing that is a much bigger deterrent uh, and a much Mm. more um deterrent to both you and your associates and the people around you Mm mm-hmm so actually asset recovery is really important from that point of view. But if we're going to persuade criminal justice to put those things equally, we need to state very forcefully that these are equal things, right. not financial investigation and asset recovery as an afterthought. Mm-hmm. To be very strong, and we say so in the book, um, to say that asset recovery should have equal status. Uh, otherwise, the, the culture of criminal justice will always make it second fiddle uh, and will always put it um, as a lower importance. So there's a there's a role for the public mm. to, um, to, to say, well, asset recovery is really important. And when the public are asked, that's what they say. I mean, there aren't many public right. surveys of what the public think, but the public mm. think asset recovery is, is really important and, mm. and because we all know about money, don't we? Somehow, criminal justice professionals don't seem to don't seem to understand how money works um, <laughs> in what they do, and yet the public, mm-hmm. knows, the politicians know. We mm. need to say more forcefully: asset recovery is 
really important if we're going to make an impact on crime. Yeah, in your in your book, when you when you talk about that that survey, all those surveys, um, I was thinking while reading it, just like that, if somebody asked me on the street what uh, what I thought, uh, what do I think that the law enforcement should be doing more asset recovery, my answer would have been, wait, you're not doing asset recovery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is um, that is a very common response when I tell people that line. Yeah, most convicted criminals keep all the money. Mm. Go why why yeah how can that be true which which was your reaction wonderfully Mm. um and and this is 20 years on after the proceeds of crime act in the uk um i mean we're doing a lot more in the uk than in other countries Mm. but but in other countries really it's very normal for financial investigation to never start therefore there's never ever any evidence Mm. therefore there's no confiscation no asset recovery yeah about what happens at the beginning with mm-hmm. with law enforcement and financial investigation and ironically we've got 200 billion pounds worth of information being poured into financial intelligence units if only they used it <laughs> right yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah uh no absolutely yeah financial financial investigation does it makes so much sense that it would be at the front that instead of having to do this uh breadcrumb trail uh at the end when when uh, when criminal investigation is already done to 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 already have it yeah there at the beginning in parallel at the front um nicholas do you have anything else to add to that i i think one of the things that you raised earlier is about that um international cooperation around mm. the, the idea that um we can we can pull this together and I, and mm-hmm. i think one of the things that we 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 realize in the book is that at the prevention side, you have the Financial Action Task Force, mm-hmm. a global policy driving body that really brings together those 200 battlefields and tries to win the war on dirty money. And, and it pulls together many of those players. But on the other side of the scale, the law enforcement is left to deal with it individually. And if we could bring together an international cooperation, the same as the Financial Action Task Force, to support law enforcement, mm. we would be able to build on many of those ideas that Tristan's just just mentioned and, mm-hmm. and, and bring together that sharing and that research because we really feel that the law enforcement side is left alone to do what it wants to do mm. and it's doing as much as it can with what it's got. And... I, I, I think that really brings us into the question of how we win the war on dirty money. And, un, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, because of many of the things that we raise in the book, you'll, you'll realise quite clearly that, yes, if you believe that we're not doing asset recovery, um, actually, we're not doing asset recovery as much as we should. So we're never going to win that war. It's it's. The, the answer is the writing is on the wall, unfortunately, as it currently stands. And it's and it's very much about changing, um, creating a new model because the existing model is obsolete. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The existing model, rather than us keep dealing with battles, internal battles and movements and changes, is actually if we put it to one side and create something new, and start that research, start that new understanding, start that idea that we can we can see a clean sheet of paper and appreciate money laundering is transfers and purchases. Um, and we can bring in the financial investigator 
early on in the state. If we can start all those ideas in a new model, that mm. new model will set us on a track uh, uh, in the right direction because mm. we don't seem to be, even with even with the mention of, of AML compliance, a huge industry that actually is not promoting its own successes because the reality <laughs> is there are not many AML compliance successes. Right. Not, these compliance people are not shouting from the rooftops on a regular basis saying we have been successful here, here <laughs> and here. It's just not happening. Mm. And, it, and, it, and if you step back and, and you read the book and you appreciate what we've actually said and then you understand the solutions that we've mentioned, you'll start to appreciate there's a lot that can be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, Nicholas. Um, Nicholas Gilmore, Tristan Hicks. What a pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks so much for coming on the Transforming Society podcast. Thanks for being with you, Rich. Oh, yeah, pleasure is all mine. Yeah, thank you. Nicholas Gilmore and Tristram Hicks's new book, The War on Dirty Money, is published by Policy Press. You can find out more about their book by visiting policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk and also transformingsociety.co.uk.